Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a great time to be the church. I shouldn't have to remind you that you are the church with a capital C. At the foot of Sinai, God said through his prophet, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then the new Israel in Christ. St. Peter intones these words, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, see, it's a great time to be the church. Well, despite appearances to the contrary. David Kinnaman, in his 2016 book entitled, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church and Rethinking Faith, based on the Barna surveys, points out six reasons why 18 to 29-year-olds are disengaging from the institutional church. Number one, overprotective. The church is seen as a creativity killer. Number two, shallow. Easy platitudes, proof texting, formulaic slogans have anesthetized many young people. Number three, anti-science. I learned from the church that I couldn't believe in both science and God, so that was it. I decided I wouldn't believe in God. Repressive. Religious rules, particularly sexual mores, feel stifling in the individualistic mindset of young adults. Number five, exclusive. They've been shaped by a culture that esteems open-mindedness, tolerance, acceptance. Christianity's claims of exclusivity are a hard sell. And number six, doubtless. Young Christians and former Christians say the church is not a place that allows them to express doubts. Well, I'm not generally a list person, but ouch. We need to confess. We need to find ourselves in this list. And there are at least two that really caught my attention that I think really apply to us and caused me to reflect. And the first is the, the shallowness, the shallowness of faith, the easy mechanical recital of formula that we learned as youth, but have been kind of drained of their content. Christianese is the slang I use to describe that. We use these great and glorious categories, sin, grace, justification, atonement, yet rarely do we stop to reflect, to discuss, to learn again what we actually mean by those categories. Too often, I fear, it's just recital and rote, pomp and platitude. The other one is directly connected, and that's the, the doubtlessness. Real growth in faith and life and sanctification comes from wrestling with the issues personally. How am I saved? How do I dare stand before a holy and righteous God? It's not simply quoting the party line. Rather, I make these confessions mine because I have wrestled with them and they are in accord with God's word. But returning to our thesis, it's a great time to be the church. I say that because these challenges that we've just listed help us to focus back on the essence of faith, 
which is simply this, trust in the promises of God. In the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon put it this way, But we are speaking about a trust in the promise and mercy of God. And this trust confesses that we are unworthy servants. Indeed, that our works are unworthy and that we are unworthy servants is the very voice of faith itself. Close quote. How does the great hymn put it? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Or as we will pray in our collect of the day a little later, O Lord, let your merciful ears be open to the prayers of your humble servant. The promises of God. Vic Pence offers a rather tongue-in-cheek comparison between a retail guarantee and God's incredible promises. He writes, about a year and a half ago, I bought a navy blue blazer at Nordstrom's. This was one of those clothing purchases. I'm sure you've done it. You buy an article of clothing, and the more you wear it, the more you realize, I don't like this thing. <laughs> it was the wrong color. It attracted lint like it was going out of style. I wore it pretty regularly for about six months, and then I stuffed it in the back of the closet, and there it sat. But also in the back of the closet, in the back of my mind, was Nordstrom's unconditional return policy. I thought, I've had this thing for a year and a half, and I've worn it a lot. There is simply no way they're going to take this back. But about two weeks ago, I thought, you know, I got nothing to lose. So he pulls it out of the closet, and he throws some lint on it to make it look really good, of course. And I walked it down in Nordstrom's men's department, and I walked in, and immediately I felt nervous. It felt like a scam. But I played it straight. The first salesman that walked up to me, I, I, I gave him my little prepared speech. It went like this. I'm about to put your famous unconditional return policy to the ultimate test. I have here a blazer. I've worn it lots. I've had it for about a year and a half, and I don't like it. It's the wrong color. It attracts lint like it's a magnet, and I want one that I like. And it stood there. I couldn't believe it. This big burly guy with this huge handlebar mustache looked at me and shook his head said, for heaven's sakes, what took you so long? Let's go get you a blazer. <laughs> Ten minutes later, I walked out with another blazer, marked 75 bucks more than the one I brought in. It's perfect, and it didn't cost me a dime. God makes all kinds of outlandish promises that we can hardly believe, can we? You'd forgive that sin, really? When we finally get up enough courage, or we finally get desperate enough, we finally take him at his word, he looks at us and shakes his head and says, what on earth took you so long? At times, God's promises are simply beyond comprehension. They are beyond all the evidence. They are beyond any experience we've ever realized. And the promises of our text from Isaiah 35 fall exactly in that category. In the end of verse 4, he will come and save you. The original is even more emphatic. He himself will come and save you. Not a surrogate, not an emissary. There'll be no angel or envoy. He sent his son, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has given the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father, literally Daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Just think of that. You are an heir, an heir of heaven. And frankly, your, our heavenly inheritance is absolutely beyond belief. Revelation 21, John hears a loud voice from heaven saying, He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are gone, passed away. When God sent his Son, then, and notice the word then in our text. Listen to the text from 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Well, God did come to save us. He sent his son. And when Jesus came, guess what? The blind did see. Recall the account from John 9. To the disciples' question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man should be born blind? What was Jesus' answer? Neither. But that the work of God might be displayed in him. So what did he do? He spat on the ground, right? Rubbed some mud, made some mud, and then put it on the man's eyes and sent him down to the pool of Siloam. And he went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. But frankly, the most compelling words, for me at least, out of John chapter 9, are on this man's lips. This is the second time the Jewish authorities have interrogated him. And there's this little bit, well, did you want to be his disciple too? Well, no. But then these words, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Well, it's true. Go back and search the scriptures. Oh, there's plenty of miracles. Elijah and Elisha even raised people from the dead. But not this. The blind see. Those born blind see. The prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled. Our gospel reading attests to the second and the fourth prophecies. The deaf and mute man that now speaks plainly, as Mark puts it. Notice in both of these miracles, though, the finger of God. We see, we hear an echo of Genesis chapter 1. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. This is the prodigal's father hiking up his robes and running after to meet him. God gets down in the dirt and does what? Makes Adam and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God can certainly speak into existence. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. But this is personal. It's intimate. It's tactile. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Certainly Jesus healed limbs. The paralytic let down through the roof in Mark chapter 2, and then the, the man beside the pool of Bethesda in John 5. But after the ascension in Pentecost, the clearest parallel is Acts chapter 3. And Peter and John in the temple gate and the man crippled from, from his mother's womb. Remember that? He's asking for alms. So Peter offers him no silver or gold, only the name of Jesus. And then this is the text. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The promises of God fulfilled. But there's more. Look at your bulletin. I don't know if you can follow the squiggly writing. Well, this is what it says. Water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. It's the exact counterpart of Romans 8, right? Where Paul writes, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Well, the examples of fallen creation abound all around us, right? Infirmities, disabilities, the groaning of an abused environment. Andy Bartelt writes, Yet the central and simple summary of the whole biblical story is this. Creation, fall, new creation. Established in Jesus Christ, accomplished by atonement and resurrection, and consummated at his second coming. But even more important is personally receiving Jesus in the water of baptism and the humility of faith. Knowing that the greatest healing has already been accomplished in Christ comes to us in the forgiveness of sin and the first fruits of the new creation. God's incredible promise of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Hearing about, recognizing God's promises fulfilled prompts us to have faith in God's promises. All of the promises of God with confidence and joyful courage. Well, the circumstances may be difficult. The way may not be clear, as the prophet says, say to those who have an anxious heart. Look to the example of Pastor Andrew Brunson. I don't know if any of you are following this case, but since October of 2016, he's been held in Turkey. He's kind of a political hostage. He's accused of having links to the failed coup of that year, as well as the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party. But most of his errors contend that Turkey's president is keeping him for diplomatic leverage. This last July, a couple months ago, after optimistic reports that Brunson would probably be released after this, his third hearing, the judge continued the trial until October 12th. The North Carolina pastor was sent back to jail. By the time this fourth hearing happens, he will have spent two years in a Turkish prison. And although the trial has not gone well for Brunson, at this hearing he still had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. In the courtroom, he forgave those who testified falsely against him, saying, My faith teaches me to forgive, so I forgive those who testified against me. Another American pastor present at the hearing had this to say. As usual, there was much spurious testimony against Andrew, but his testimony was absolutely powerful. He presented the gospel with confidence and defended himself with boldness against all appearances to the contrary. It's a great time to be the church because the gospel continues to go out. The promises of God are the certain future of the church. Therefore, we speak with confidence and joyful courage. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.